Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this program is Rosalind Lapierre, who is Associate Professor in the Environmental Studies Program at the University of Montana, and a Research Associate at the National Museum of Natural History. I spoke to Rosalind recently on the phone from Montana about her new book with the Nebraska University Press. It's called Invisible Reality, and it looks at the beliefs, culture and history of the Blackfeet tribe of the Northern Great Plains. Rosalind is herself an enrolled Blackfeet tribal member, and her book very deftly weaves in personal and family history with the wider history and culture of the tribe. But as she writes in the preface of her book, for me the Blackfeet past is a foreign country, a different world. When my grandparents grew up, they spoke a different language, practiced a different religion, ate different foods, and had different customs than they had in the modern world. When I look at their past, I am truly looking at a foreign place. So the key questions we're pursuing in this programme are, how did the Blackfeet conceive of their world? And how did they respond to the multiple assaults on their civilization from the mid-19th century on? The disappearance of the bison, the loss of much of their land, the hunger winter of 1883-4, enforced acculturation through language and religion. But I began by asking Rosalind to tell me about the traditional Blackfeet stories she was told as a child by her great-aunt Agnes. So I would say that um, one of the things, the way that she told stories, so first of all, her first language was Blackfeet. And she was speaking um, to, you know, at this point, young children who their primary language is English. And she would do the thing where she would speak primarily English, but also go back and forth between Blackfeet and English. The way we would view today, like many immigrant grandparents, right, speaking to grandchildren. So when she was speaking to us, it was primarily in English, but the way that she told stories was of places and what I would say, quote unquote, people, right? Animals, beings, plants that had the same agency and the same presence as humans. And so there was never a point in her storytelling where she would stop and say, oh, wait, well, that deer that I'm talking about, it wasn't real. You know, this is just a story. She would always 
tell stories um, as if all of these things were real because to her they were and the way she was raised they were and they were present in her world. And so when they were told to us, they were present in our world as well. And so the idea that there was kind of this separation um, between the secular world and the sacred really did not exist within their worldview. And so I think that was one of the things that as a child, I was raised to believe that and think that. And it didn't occur to me, of course, till later, I'm in college, I'm an academic, where we really do separate, you know, those worlds, that I started thinking back of what was my experience of when I first learned uh, many of these stories that ultimately got written down, that ultimately then I'm studying, right, as an academic, (laughs) and then going, you know, going back then to think about them back the way I had originally heard them, that makes sense. So kind of a circular process of it's, you know, I heard them first as this one way, then I, then they get written down, then I'm reading them as an academic and studying them and thinking about them as an academic and then going back and saying, wait, what was that first experience that I had with them? And before you became an academic, there was another, another phase that you write about, I guess, when you were, when you were reading uh, by yourself, maybe in adolescence or, or pre-adolescence. And you mention an anthology, which um, the, the Blackfoot Lodge Tales, and you describe that as being very one-dimensional compared to what your grandmother and your, your great-aunt had been uh, recounting to you. So what, what was it that was missing, do you think? Was it just oral verses written, or was, it, was there something more that had kind of got lost in the transcription? Yeah, I think that the first time I had read the Blackfeet Lodge Tales, which is a very popular book, still in print, you know, more than 100 years later, still popular today around the world um, that tells these stories of Blackfeet, you know, what would be considered both kind of mythology and history. And the first time I read them, I thought, wow, okay, wait, that is the same exact story that I know, that I've heard many times, but it was so one-dimensional. And I think part of it was because there was, in the writing of it, it did try to separate out that, the kind of the secular versus the sacred. Then when you're reading it, it becomes more like what we would consider today a story of history and less a story that is related to the supernatural realm. I was really intrigued by an anecdote you told about your grandmother when some university researchers came to ask her to tell them some stories so they could they could um, record them, and they they rather dutifully go through decade by decade. Can you say something about what your grandmother's reaction was to that? Because I think that that says a lot about this this question about how reality is perceived. Yeah. So in that particular case, the University of Lethbridge was doing a oral history project with elders in the Blackfeet Confederacy, and there. Are, The Blackfeet live both in Canada and the United States. And so they were interviewing people at the different, either reserve or reservation. And so they came to my grandmother. And so my grandmother's sort of translation or definition of the word, quote unquote, story, is that story means 
something that is both this blending of something that would be considered historical or secular and also um, the sacred or supernatural. And when they were questioning her, oh, and I should say those stories, the way my grandmother thinks of them, even though there may be a historic event that is the center of it, they are still seen in a timeless manner. So when the researchers were interviewing her, they literally did not allow her to tell what she would consider a true story, but they were asking her sort of decade by decade, you know, tell us what happened during this decade and then tell us what happened during that decade. And they wanted, you know, kind of a stripped away secular historical account of what happened during those times. And she was sort of telling them like, okay, you know, in the 30s, this happened. Okay, well, in the 40s, you know, there was the war, right? And in the 50s, this happened. And then she was just like befuddled. Like, I thought they came here to actually hear Blackfeet stories, not this sort of chronicle, this account that is happening, you know, decade by decade. And to her, that kind of chronicling wouldn't have had explanatory power it wouldn't really have said anything very profound about the about the universe is 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 that true yes absolutely so you know the way that the blackfeet think of stories and first let me say you know i mean the obviously the blackfeet do understand the concept of time yes. right yes. <laughs> and they do understand the concept of the, the past the present and the future but within that there's still a sense that there is a timelessness to the world that we live in and that people can be placed into a story. And, you know, part of the purpose of storytelling, at least to the Blackfeet tribe, is that you are experiencing the story while it's being told to you. So you are in the place, you know, you are watching these events happening. So you're not in Montana, sitting and hearing the story, you are wherever the story is being told. And so the idea of the chronicling or like, let's just go, you know, point by point, that really, again, kind of strips away that Blackfeet method of storytelling, where you're being put in the place at that time and, and actually experiencing it, feeling it, watching it, that, that uh, wasn't occurring. So this might be a good point, Rosalind, for me to ask you if you could just say a little bit about Blackfeet cosmology, how the world divides into three different realms, but how those realms interpenetrate, interconnect with each other. Yeah, so the Blackfeet believe that there are three separate realms, three separate worlds. Their translation of the names of those worlds are the sky world, which is you know, sort of anything that is in the stars and uh, constellations. The below world, which is considered Earth, so anything that happens here on Earth, and the water world or underwater world, so anything that happens underwater. And all three of those worlds are similar in the sense that there are people who live in all of those worlds. There are entities that sometimes are not people, Um, that live in all three of those worlds. There are monsters, right? 
So there are sort of the good characters and the bad characters that exist in those worlds. There are animals, there are plants, there are natural elements, you know, rocks, shells, dirt, right? So all of those things exist in all three of those worlds. There are towns, there are villages, et cetera. So humans live primarily on Earth, and um, humans and other entities from these different worlds can go to these separate worlds with assistance. So for a human to enter the sky world, a human would need an ally from that particular world, or another way to say it is like an ambassador from that world to bring them to that world. Or if they went to the underwater world, um, the same thing is true. And humans can live in the sky world, and humans can live in the underwater world with, again, assistance um, or, or an ambassador who takes them there. And people from, or entities from these other worlds can also come to the earth. So the Blackfeet believe that there are, you know, these three kind of parallel worlds that are permeable. You can go from one to the other, so they're not completely separate, but their um, entire sort of cosmology and belief system is centered around those three kind of worlds of existence. And am I right in understanding that these these stories are not simply a way the Blackfeet use to explain how the world is, but actually go further and explain how human beings can exert agency on the world, how they can affect the natural world in ways that they think are desirable by harnessing the power of the supernatural. So it's not, it's not just sort of saying, here, here is the world, but it's, it's almost sort of in giving instruction for how to exert agency on the world. Yes, so part of the Blackfeet belief system is that much of what we see in what we would call the natural world is not quote-unquote natural, but is part of the supernatural realm. So because there are different elements of the world that are part of the supernatural realm, that usually means that humans can interact with them. And humans, again, with an ally, can influence or change the world that they live in. So some of the examples that I share in this book are things like the Blackfeet don't believe, for example, that anything related to weather is a considered quote-unquote natural phenomenon, but those are connected to the supernatural realm and in fact are, um, su- some of them are supernatural entities or supernatural beings. And so the Blackfeet as humans are able to change the weather if they want to, or if they need to, with the help of other supernatural allies that they have. And so what this does is this allows the Blackfeet really to have a completely different understanding of their place in the world. So they are not waiting for things to happen to them. They are actually asserting their own, their own agency on the world that they live in. Now, your book is not just about the beliefs and the stories of the Blackfeet. It also gives a picture of 
the huge amount of change that the Blackfeet experienced were subjected to from the the mid-19th century and into the 20th century. And one of the the really arresting illustrations in the book, I thought, was a picture of your great-grandparents taken in 1921. And I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about both the, the circumstances of that picture that you reproduce and also say a little bit about what their life experience had been because it, because they had lived through some of the most tumultuous decades in, in Blackfeet history. So one of the things I wanted to do with this book is start at the time period of when both of my grandparents were born. And my grandfather was born in 1911 and my grandmother was born in 1914. So I start the story in 1910 and I tell what life is like in 1910 on the Blackfeet reservation. I also tell the story of these early ethnographers and early anthropologists who are coming to the reservation and collecting these stories, collecting objects, etc. that end up in museums. So when the story begins in the book, it is a story of this time period that my grandparents are growing up in. And both of my grandparents are raised by older members of the family. Both of my grandparents end up being adopted out by other members of their family. So, for example, my grandmother is raised by two grandmothers, grandmother and great-grandmother. My grandfather is adopted by the relative, his mother's relative, older relatives who, because they have lived through a time period that encompasses uh, the loss of the bison, a loss of a lot of land, a lot of disease. My grandfather's father, his adoptive father, cannot have any children. So he marries two women, uh, which was common during those days. Polygamy was common. He marries two sisters, and he adopts the children of those women, but also my, my grandfather. So when my grandfather's adopted, he is being raised essentially by grandparents. And so the photograph from 1921 is a photograph that was taken by uh, the United States government, and they went through the entire reservation and they were photographing uh, different families and it was part of what was called a quote-unquote an industrial survey and they were doing a survey of all of the different families to provide the United States government information as to what extent these particular families were assimilating or acculturating from being native people to being American farmers. And so as part of the photograph, there's also information about the house that they're living in, the children that are living in the house, the farm that they have. So there's this very detailed information about each uh, family that is part of this industrial survey. They're really being assessed and graded, aren't they, by the, by the standards of the, the U.S. government? Yes, absolutely. And so... Which was a highly alien, a highly alien form of measurement. Oh, absolutely. 
So, you know, I mean, they went from literally being people who were living on the northern Great Plains, who had been uh, bison hunters, uh, who had been gatherers. They lived a nomadic life. By nomadic, I don't mean, you know, kind of wandering around. They were very strategic of where they lived. They lived in the same places year after year and went to the same places year after year. And um, they were pushed from the northern Great Plains all the way to the west to the mountains. So the Blackfeet are still in their same original territory, but at a much, much, much smaller space, uh, land base, uh, than they had been previously. And so one of the things that, at least for my grandfather's parents, that they had to deal with was figuring out how to take care of their family, uh, you know, have a different lifestyle that did not involve traveling, but involved being sedentary and staying in one place, living in one house, and then also, you know, eating completely different foods. Literally, they went from eating one type of food, which was wild meat and you know, wild uh, berries and roots and, and et cetera, to a completely Western diet that was completely foreign to them. So eating eating cows, growing vegetables such as potatoes and carrots and turnips and cabbages. And so they literally went 100% from eating one type of food to eating another. So there was a lot of disorientation, right? from disorientation to where they lived to disorientation to the food they were eating, uh, being introduced to a completely alien belief system, religious belief system, different ideas about time. I had talked about time earlier, but different ideas about time and timeliness and, and having their children learn a new language, being forced actually to learn a new language. My grandfather's parent, grandparents or parents, never learned to speak English, but my grandfather did. So, I mean, all of this is kind of going on during that early time period. And and in the book, I just try to give a sense of this kind of disorientation that is occurring at this time that my grandparents are growing up. And so they're growing up being raised by people who are older, who never learn to speak English, who never convert to a different religion, Um, but are still struggling to figure out how to navigate, right, this this new place that they are living in. I mean, what you've described is sort of multiple assaults, really, on a a culture and and a way of life. Is it your sense that the belief system of the Blackfeet was was something positive that they could adhere to that would help them or there was something which was also being eroded because of these um, these sort of multiple assaults on all fronts? Well, I think for the older generation, the their religious belief system is what centered them. And they continued to practice their religion. They continued to believe in their uh, understanding, you know, their cosmology, none of that changed. Even though there was really an assault on and an effort to assimilate and acculturate by the U.S. government, the U.S. government realized quickly that they were not going to have a large impact on adults and that their method 
of change was going to be with children, which is why the boarding school system got started, which is why there was a a large effort to um, make sure that children were speaking English. So to a certain extent, even though the U.S. government was creating a system that was not difficult, I mean, that was difficult for the older generation to navigate. The older generation just basically told the U.S. government they were not going to do certain things. And one was they were not going to change their religion. They were not going to speak English. And they didn't. And they didn't. But that really did center them. And it also continued to give them a continued kind of sense of hope and confidence in the world that they were, that they were living in. I was talking to Rosalind Lapierre about her recent book, Invisible Reality, Storytellers, Storytakers, and the Supernatural World of the Blackfeet, which is published by Nebraska University Press. You can find out more about it on Nebraska's website. Do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the program on iTunes, where you can catch up on any interviews you've missed. There are all sorts of good things coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week's programme stays with a supernatural theme and features an interview with Ronald Hutton about the figure of the witch in history. Until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.